This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Now I mentioned that we're taking two petitions in one week and we have communion and I have four points. So I'm not sure what's happening. Uh, But what we're going to do is we are going to look at verse 10. And before we get in, I want to let you know that many, and I would agree, would say that verse 10 can be the umbrella by which we understand the entire scripture. Uh, The fact that God's kingdom is meant to be here on earth, and this is meant to be God's dwelling place, we read in our call to worship, we see it in Genesis 1. In the fall, we see the promise in Genesis 3 that God will continue to bring his kingdom to this earth, even though sin has interrupted that. And we see at the end of the Bible, again from our call to worship, that God will dwell on this earth. And the entirety of the scriptures speak to that truth. They speak to that reality. And so this morning, there are many things that I wanted to say. As I studied, I almost felt overwhelmed because there's so many things we could have talked about. And honestly, verse 10, we could talk about it for weeks. It could be its own sermon series. So what does it mean for God's kingdom to come? What does it mean to pray that God's kingdom would come? And what does it mean to pray that God's will would be done? Now, before we start, I just want to mention what Jesus means by will. Because as I talked to some people this week, uh, part of it's our culture, part of it is our own anxiety. When we read the will of God anywhere in the Bible, we automatically or oftentimes think that we're praying for God's will of our individual life. You know, that thing that we wish we knew. We wish we knew God's will for our life. That's, that's not exactly what Jesus is praying for, and that's not what he's asking us to pray for. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, uh, Moses writes that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That is to say, God's secret will. God's will that even if he told us, we would not be able to understand. That will, God does not tell us. That is his secret will. But it says... All of those things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. You see, what Jesus is praying for is that God's revealed will. So think the Bible, think the Ten Commandments, think the Sermon on the Mount. That is God's revealed will. That is what God has clearly told us he longs to see on the earth. And that is what Jesus is having us pray for. So we could talk about a lot considering God's will is the whole Bible. We could talk about a lot considering the kingdom uh, expansion is the purpose of the universe. But this morning, we're hemmed in by the fact that this is the Lord's Prayer. And so we are in a series. And so that's been helpful this week. So what I hope to do is I hope to briefly and quickly, but so maybe I should say succinctly the best I can, try to walk us through how we can understand these two petitions and then apply it to prayer. Okay? 
So here we go. Four points. They're going to come up on the screen one at a time. But my first thing I want to speak to is, what is Jesus's vision? Okay. Jesus's vision is the kingdom. Heaven is the standard. Earth is the mission. We are the agents. All right. That's where we're going. Here we go. Jesus's vision is the kingdom. What is a vision? Like, what is a vision statement for a company? What is a vision statement for a life, for a cause? Well, a vision statement is, is a picture, a mental picture, a picture of the heart of a desired future, a future that should be. That is a vision. So if you have a vision statement for a new city, for example, our vision statement is to, is to see the city beautiful. If you come to our lunch at 101, you'll, you'll hear that our desire is for Orlando to look like the kingdom of God. That is the picture that we have. And we will set up our mission, our strategies towards that end to see it come. And we'll change our strategies as much as we need to, to keep working towards that end. And New City should always and will always have a cause to exist for until Orlando looks like the kingdom of God. That is a vision. And if a vision isn't so big that your entire life can come up underneath it, then it is not a good vision. If the vision for your life is anything short of the kingdom of God, then it's not a good vision. In fact, a vision should be so big that it, that it can take our entire life and the lives of our children and their children's children and the children after that. That is Jesus's vision because Jesus's vision is the kingdom of God. And as Christians, the vision for our lives should be to join our maker and savior in his vision for the world. So what is the kingdom? Isn't God already king? I mean, we just sang that, right? We sang it in a few songs that God is king, that he's a good king, that he rules. All of this is true. But in the Bible, there's a distinguishing mark between God's kingship and God's kingdom, okay? God's kingship is a fact. It's based on creation. God is king. The fact that the stars are still in alignment, the fact that the sun came up this morning proves that God is still king. In theology, this is called God's providence. God's ordering of the universe is his kingship. Amen. It is his kingship. Now, when God's kingdom comes, that's something altogether different. It's an implication of his kingship. The kingdom is the historical program of God coming to overcome his enemies, redeem his people, and bring his lordship to bear in all areas of created reality. I'm gonna say that again. What is God's kingdom? It's wherever God reigns. The kingdom of God is the historical program. That is to say, God coming in history to overcome his enemies, to redeem his people, and to bring his lordship to bear on all created reality. So what that means is as far as sin goes, that's how far the kingdom needs to go in order to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus's vision is to see his rule and reign come over all people, all areas of life, all human institutions, and all human cultures perfectly. And until that happens, God's kingdom is not fully here. And that's what we pray for. So Jesus, in having us pray that God's kingdom would come, is first having us pray 
that God's kingdom would come in our life. That God's reign and rule, that his will would be done in our lives in such a way that increasingly there is no backtalk. Increasingly, there is a desire to see God's will and reign in our life and in everything that we touch. So what is the vision for your life? Last week, we talked about a vision of the good life, that all of us have this vision of the good life and that that vision of the good life pulls us towards something more than our beliefs push us towards something. Our vision of the good life, the vision for our life, what is worthy, what is worth sacrificing for, pulls us. It, it pulls us into decisions. It pulls our hearts in certain directions more than our beliefs push us, although they're both important. And so Jesus, in asking us to pray that God's kingdom would come, he's asking us first to pray that God's reign and rule would capture our imaginations and that more and more our lives would line up with Jesus's vision of seeing God's kingdom come. So that's Jesus's vision, but how do we know when the kingdom comes? Well, I've already said it, but it's in the text, so I wanna point it out. Look at this in verse 10b. Jesus says that your kingdom come, let it come. Pray that his kingdom would come. He prays and he has us pray that God's will would be done. But then he says this, on earth as it is in heaven. So you see the vision is the kingdom, but the standard is heaven. Heaven is the standard. In the Bible, what is heaven? Do you know? In the Bible, what is heaven? Heaven in the Bible is pictured as the throne room of God. That is heaven in the Bible. And what is in the throne room? A throne. And who's on the throne? God. And what happens in the throne room? Whatever he wants, always, without interruption, that is heaven. Heaven is where God is, where he rules, where he reigns, and where his will is done perfectly. Now think about it. In heaven is God the king. And wherever the king is, his rule and reign is done perfectly. And Jesus is having us pray that his rule and reign would come more and more on earth, which we'll get to in a moment. But I do want to draw our attention to this fact, and this was pointed out to me by uh, a teacher of mine years ago, and it continues to dwell and take its place up in my heart and mind, and that is this. <clears throat> we don't do well with kings, right? We're American. This country was founded on the belief that kings are a bad idea. We will have no kings. And our rulers, we will vote them. That's called democracy. And if we don't like our rulers, we'll vote for new ones. Which, by the way, I like that. Except for one king. One king is worthy. One king is wise. We sang about him. One king is good. And that is God. Now, we don't understand kingdoms because we don't have a king. So the fact that I would say God is king doesn't strike fear in you immediately or me as it should. Because if you live in a kingdom, the king does whatever he wants in your life and you have no say. You realize that, right? The king says off with your head, your head's gone. The king says, do this, you do it. That's why it's a bad thing to have a bad king. All right? So in the South here, uh, I'm from the Midwest, 
We don't do college football very well, obviously. But down here, people love college football. So it's kind of like this, right? We don't have kings, but we have major college football programs, right? And what happens when a new coach comes into a large football program? He brings, so to speak, his administration, right? He brings with him his coaches, a new playbook, a new rules. You play by his rules. That is not a democracy, okay? The players do not decide how they live. They do not decide when they practice. They do not decide how they practice. They do what the king says. We get that, right? And we know it's a bad king if the team loses, right? But it's a good king if the team wins, Maybe we understand that if we don't understand a kingdom, that when the king comes, when Jesus comes in our lives now and increasingly, we get in line. That's what it means to follow a king. Heaven is the standard. So you and I must continue to pray this prayer until our lives look exactly as they would if we were in the throne room of God right now our hearts, our motivations, our minds, our lives. Until that happens, God's work is not done in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I find that my vision for my own life is so small. It's so small. If only I could live long and have a happy life and uh, make some money and send my kids to college and not get sick. And if I'm honest with myself, that's really the guiding principles of my life. Like how can I line my life up in such a way to where those things happen? Now we'll see later on in the prayer that those things in and of themselves are not the problem. The problem is why. The problem is our motivation. The problem is what is our heart pointing to ultimately? And if our hearts are not lined up and directed towards seeing God's will, done in our lives like it is in heaven, we're not understanding the prayer. We're not understanding what God wants to do. And so Jesus is saying, pray that increasingly God in his power would release you from false gods, would release you from false kingdoms because heaven is the standard. What's your standard? What's your standard in your life? How do you you know if you're doing well? How do you know if you're not doing well? What do you pray towards? What do you hope in? Jesus is saying, I want your vision to be the kingdom and I want your standard to be heaven. Jesus is praying for lifelong, moment by moment prayer or until God comes back where God's revealed will will be done all over the earth to the extent that it is done in heaven. And until this is happening in our lives, we keep praying this and longing for this. So the vision is the kingdom, God's reign and rule on the earth. Heaven is the standard and the earth is the mission. Now, there are many forms of Christianity that says, actually, I agree with the first two things, but what needs to happen now is we just need to hunker down until God takes us to heaven. If you read the call to worship, you know that can't be right because heaven's coming here. You read that, right? The dwelling place of God is with man, not the dwelling place of man is with God. We never, ever, ever go up in the biblical story. God always, always, always comes down. 
What happened when we tried to build our way up to go to God? That's called the Tower of Babel. God always comes down. He always seeks. He always seeks to bring his will and his kingdom on earth. So the question would be, okay, so I want God's kingdom to come in my life and I want God to use me, but how and where? On earth. Wherever God would call you. Every single one of us, as the Lordship of Christ continues to subdue us, we're called out into the world to tear off a tiny piece of the darkness. And I don't know where your tiny piece is. Maybe it's with children at home. Maybe it's in finance or medicine or law, business, ministry. That is to say vocational ministry like me. I don't know where it is. But we, we only know that we have a true vision of the kingdom when we actually believe God wants to bring his reign and rule to bear in our everyday lives in the places he calls us. Remember I said, God's reign and rule will not stop until it overcomes all people, all institutions, all culture in every place that sin has touched. That is the mission. The earth is the mission. In Luke the Pharisees asked Jesus, where is the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you. I'm the kingdom. I'm the king. I'm bringing the kingdom. So you see, the kingdom is here. It's been here since Jesus came. He brought it. But the kingdom isn't already here all the way. And theologians throughout history have called this the already, not yet of the kingdom of God. God's reign and rule is already here and it's not yet here. But what happens on the in-between? What happens, what should we expect? Now we could talk a lot about how the churches interact with culture and I wish we could, but we can't. But what we do know from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 38, is that Jesus, through his parables, expects that when he brings the kingdom, the kingdom will continue to expand until he comes back. Remember the parable of the leaven, that when a little bit is dropped in, it continues to grow, or the mustard seed? Remember this tiny itty bitty seed, but it's planted and it grows and grows and grows until the tree is huge. So you see, this prayer is for both God's future kingdom to come, but it's also for the continued expansion in our lives and on the earth. We're actually praying that Jesus' reign and rule would be made more and more wherever he would send his people. The prayer looks for God to take action in the world. It's not for Christians to escape the world or the earth. It's an expectation that God would actually act in the world. His mission would be the earth. Remember the difference I mentioned earlier between a vision statement and a mission statement? A vision statement is this desired picture that's so big, it will take a long, long time to see it happen. But everything is directed towards that picture of how things ought to be. And then your mission are the strategies, the things that are necessary in order to bring that vision about. You see, if Jesus' vision is the kingdom, his mission was his life, death, and resurrection. To do what? 
To do what? Well, to reconcile all things to himself. That's what Colossians 1 tells us. That on the cross, the blood of the cross reconciles all of creation, all things back to God. So that God's kingship, God's kingdom would reign. And those two things would go together on the earth. And so the kingdom coming will mean an increasing and one day fulfilled final and total destruction of the devil and his angels. It will mean the formation of a redeemed society unmixed with evil and perfect fellowship with God. That's what the kingdom looks like. And that's what Jesus is asking us to submit to and to take part in. Can you, can you imagine uh, what vision, what vision's better than that? What vision for our life is better than participating with God in the coming of his kingdom? And the beautiful thing about Christianity, the beautiful thing about that, the beautiful thing about the incarnation, the fact that God became a man is that your participation takes place every day wherever you are called. There is never a time out. God never calls a time out on his call for you to join him in bringing his kingdom. Now, don't miss this. You do not build the kingdom. I do not build the kingdom. God does that. But he uses us to bring it. He uses us to facilitate the growth. We are his people. We are his kingdom people. So when Jesus has us pray this, first he's saying, where's the vision Where's the vision of your life? Is it lined up with my vision? My vision is the kingdom of God where God reigns and rules and his revealed will is done perfectly on earth. That is the vision. Pray that God would let your heart get in line with that. He then prays, don't set up some other standard besides heaven. Heaven is the standard where God's will is done perfectly. And also he says, don't disengage from the world as though one day if you hold on long enough and you're good enough, then I will take you away. No, he's saying, actually participate with me to bring my kingdom to earth. So Jesus's vision is the kingdom. Heaven is the standard. Earth is the mission. And lastly, we are the agents. Not secret agents, but God has given us agency to act. Have you ever thought about the concept of wisdom in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Wisdom. Wisdom. My favorite definition is wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Do you know how many questions God asks us? I mean, I've heard him call this, God is the interrogative God. Let's just take one example. Adam, where are you? Like he didn't know where Adam was. No, he asks questions so that we would express our agency. He gives us a vision and a mission and his revealed will. And then we grow in wisdom by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring that about. And I want you to know it was supposed to be like that from the very beginning. We're not agents because of sin. We're agents because we're human beings. In the beginning, before sin ever entered the world, we were made as image bearers. When God created the world, go back with me to Genesis. You remember who wrote Genesis? It was Moses. Do you know who Moses wrote Genesis to? 
he wrote it to the original audience of all of those immediate generations who had just been brought out of slavery in Egypt. That's who he pinned it to. Now, of course it's ours, we're reading their mail. It's our Bible, we're part of the family. But the original audience was those people. Where did those people just come from? They came from Egypt. And I want you to know, one of my favorite teachers taught me this a few years ago, and it's just shaped my understanding of this text. When God created human beings, and Moses writes that God made them in his image and likeness, the original audience would have known what that meant immediately. But you know who they would have thought was the image and likeness of God? Pharaoh. You know why? Because it was Pharaoh's job on earth as the image of God to receive the revealed will of God and make sure it happened on the earth. That's why peasants could die in the building of pyramids and it was worthy because that was God's will. That's what Pharaoh said. And what Moses is saying is, yes, the image and likeness of God receives his will and carries it out on earth. But there's one lie. Pharaoh isn't the only image and likeness of God. We all are the image and likeness of God. A human being is being fully human. When they are receiving God's will, it is taking over their life and heart and they are making it happen in the world wherever they go. That is the image and likeness of God. That is what I mean by we are God's agents. And now as the redeemed image and likeness of God in Christ, do you think that goes away? No, the way God will bring his kingdom is through his agents. He has given us his will. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He's transforming us. He's changing us so that wherever he would call us, we bring about his will. We bring about his reign and rule on the earth. That's what it means to be a redeemed image bearer. That's what it means to be the image of God. But I wanna end with this. How in the world does that happen? How does it happen? Because we're made to be kingdom people, we will either line our lives up under the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of Christ, or there's another kingdom the Bible tells us of, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world. And the way the Bible tells us we enter into the kingdom of light is we trust in Jesus we trust in Jesus. And earlier in the Beatitudes, which the Lord's Prayer in Matthew is in one of Jesus's most famous sermons. And a little earlier in the sermon, he says, the way you enter the kingdom is by being poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means to realize you have nothing to offer. Not middle class in spirit. Not, oh, I think I can try hard enough. I think I can do good enough. No, no, poor in spirit. You're looking for charity. You realize you have no power. You have no agency. Unless God redeems your agency and brings you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And Jesus is speaking to his kingdom people. So how will it happen? Remember the coach I told you about who would come to that football program? He brings his administration. He brings his reign, his rule, his values, his rules. Okay, Jesus is doing that. 
And the way you and I participate in the coming of his kingdom is that our lives are increasingly brought in to his will, his rules, his power. Now, the funny thing about kingdoms is they can always be evaluated by how they view these things. Power, money, recognition, and success. It's all throughout Jesus' teaching. All kingdoms have a, a, a standpoint, a, a registry, a valuing of power, money, recognition, and, and success. And the way you and I live as agents in the world is to submit ourselves to the kingdom of God's evaluation of power, money, recognition, and success. So this is where I'm gonna end. How do you use your power? We are all very powerful in this room, every single one of us. I don't believe Jesus would ask us to get rid of our power. I believe that he would ask us to evaluate it and ask ourselves, am I, am I using my power for the kingdom of God and the flourishing of others or for my own kingdom? How do you use your power? Do you ever ask yourself, how do I use my power, my privilege towards the flourishing of others? Or is it all about you? What about success? How do you do that? Jesus earlier in Matthew 5 says that the way the kingdom of the world views success is that they would be made much of, that they would be famous, that they would be a celebrity. Is it your deepest heart's desire that you would be a celebrity? I don't mean like on People Magazine. I just mean in whatever world you live in, that you would be a celebrity. If so, your view of the good life is being shaped by the wrong kingdom. What about money? Money is power, right? Wealth is power. So really it's the same thing. How are we using that for the flourishing of others? It's not bad to have wealth, but how are you using it? It's not bad to have power, but how are you using it? What kingdom are you lining up with? In a moment, when we come to this table, all of us are gonna have to recognize that we fail miserably at that. We all are too busy living our own lives for our own reasons, for our own success, for our own names, in our own power, with our own power, for our own kingdoms. That's happening. But in a moment, we'll come to this table and we'll realize that Jesus, who was all-powerful, who was the wealthiest, who was the richest, left his riches to become poor so that we could become rich in him. Who, who deserved all praise, all honor, was spit on and mocked so that we could be released from the kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of light. That Jesus, our Lord, that is our King. That is the kingdom that we are being called to submit to. So how can we trust that we'll be satisfied in this kingdom? How can we be, know that we'll be fulfilled? Because the very king of that kingdom came and emptied himself, discomforted himself so that we could be comforted, we could be full, we could have life. Let's pray. Father, we are a stubborn people often. But we are so thankful that you are slow to anger and gracious. You are ultimately powerful, yet fully loving and merciful. 
You have made a way for us. You have redeemed our agency. You have brought us and restored us to a mission that is worthy because it's, it's your mission. It's your vision of the world. And I pray that today and this week and as we pray this prayer and as we come to this table, that we would be poor in spirit, broken, and at the same time reminded that in Christ, we reign with him. In Christ, we are kings and queens. We are royalty. And we pray that we would take that power, that honor, that privilege, and that we would use it for the flourishing of others, that we would use it even disadvantaging ourselves for the advantage of others. What a privilege. Thank you that you love us.